So here there's two issues. Um, and this gets a little bit, it gets, it gets a bit nerdy, but if we're gonna look at the sort of the winners and losers and the politics of the issue, we have to understand a little bit about the issues are. So as countries are introducing pharmaceutical patent systems, they have to make, they have to make two decisions. They have to decide one thing like I call looking forward and one thing looking back. Looking forward, they have to decide when they're gonna start examining applications and granting them. Prior to this period, if you went, and, if you went to the patent office in Argentina or Brazil or Mexico or virtually any other developing country, and you said, I want to, I, here's my application for a pharmaceutical patent, they would take it and they would throw it away. Now they're gonna to have to start examining it. They may not give it to you, but they have to at least examine it. Um, when is that gonna happen? So the WTO gave them until 2005, the external pressures to over-comply were sort of not to, do, not to wait till 2005, but to do it immediately. That's simple. The second one is a bit more complicated. Um, what do they do with applications or even patents that were already granted on products that were what the pharmaceutical industry calls in the pipeline? Um, these are older inventions, but for newer products. Let me, let me explain this. It's quite important for everything that happens afterwards, um, but it's not, it's not intuitive. In pharmaceuticals, there's this long period. You patent really early, and then after you've applied for the patent, you then develop the product, and if the product is any good, you take it from the lab to the clinic, and you go through various stages of clinical trials, and if you succeed all of those, you apply for regulatory approval from the equivalent of sort of the health agency in the US, the FDA, the FDA um, and eventually you might actually get a product on the market. That gap there is usually about eight years, 10 years, 12 years, it's a significant gap. So let's, let's imagine that it's 1990 and you apply for a patent on a pharmaceutical product. You know, you have a, you, you've invented a pharmaceutical product. You want a patent in, in Brazil. It's 1990. Brazil doesn't give pharmaceutical patents. I've already said that. So you can't get that. Brazil's gonna, let's say Brazil or some country starts granting patents in 1995, according to the, what the WTO says. <coughs> well, in 1995, your invention is no longer new. And one of the cornerstones of patent law is that you only get a patent on things that are new. By 1995, the invention was old, it was five years ago. It's out there, it's in the public domain. But the product doesn't exist yet. In 1995, the product that's associated that 1990 patent is probably still in development. So the, 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 that's why I write the, the invention is old, but the product is still, it's in the pipeline. It's gonna get launched in 1996 or 97, 98, 99. So from the, from the WTO's perspective, countries did not have to deal with these older ones. They had to start granting patents sometime after 1995, and they had to, even, no matter, even if they picked, say, 2005 in the, first, like the extreme out thing here, they had to at least start receiving applications starting in 1995, and just hold on to them, and then in 2005, they'd start looking at all the applications they had received since 1995, but nothing, According to the WTO, was nothing prior to 1995 where they were obligated to do. It's as if the world of pharmaceutical patenting started on the 1st of January 1995. Any invention prior to that, according to the TRIPS agreement, you don't have to deal with. The, the pressure from industry was, and this was, this was once it became clear that countries were going to be obligated to grant patents, this then became the highest priority is protect the earlier ones too. Uh, because this has meant that they would have protection for drugs that were about to get, about to get on the market. Otherwise, they're not going to get protection for drugs until the drugs would have a 1995 patent may not come on the market until 
2005, well into the second, well into the next dec uh, century. So what do the three countries do? How do they vary? Argentina waited the longest and did not grant these pipeline ones. Uh, Mexico super early, even before the TRIPS agreement is completed. This is actually even before NAFTA, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, with, a, with a pipeline for, for older ones and Brazil somewhere in the middle. A bit more delayed, but um, still early relative to the 2005 possibility and with this pipeline. So how can I explain this? This is a very simple scheme. Um, I start by looking at the, the actors that were most opposed to this. Again, opposed to what I'm calling over-compliance. Um, and this is basically looking, starting at the local pharmaceutical sector, because they're the ones who have the most to lose. Um, if they are weak, either on their own or unable to build allies, we sort of move to the no category, and then we're going to get some form of over-compliance, almost regardless of what else happens, because all of the pressure, external pressures are pushing in the direction of over-compliance. Um, if the defensive coalition basically, if the, lo the local, if they could defend themselves, then we basically move to the next thing, which is basically whether or not the, those who want over-compliance can expand their coalition. Um, and if the answer is, if they, if they can, we're in the, this middle outcome of over-compliance, and if they can't, then basically the defensive coalition wins, so to speak. It's a very simple scheme um, to try to put some meat on the bones. For the first question, I'm looking at the characteristics of pharmaceutical industries, uh, economic and political, and their alliances with other actors. And for the second one is, is trade profile, which I'll explain momentarily. Uh, so let's, this is characteristics of the three countries, pharma sectors. Um, these, the different indicators here aren't collected, obviously, from the same sources or at the same time. So it's just sort of roughly on the eve of this global sea change. I don't think we need to go through this uh, row by row by row. There's five different ways. There's a fairly consistent story here, which is that no matter which row you pick, the Argentinians are the strong ones. Um, if, Kevin, we were talking before the light bulb exploded, uh, if India were on here, it would look a lot like Argentina. Um, and in fact, if India were in this analysis, obviously the names of the people would be different and the names of the actors are different, but the story is actually a very similar story to Argentina. It actually, India codes similar to Argentina on almost every sort of variable that I look at. Um, on some dimensions, you might even say the Mexican pharmaceutical industry is stronger than the Brazilian ones. On some, the Brazilian one is stronger, but they're both a world apart from the Argentinian one. Um, just, just to note, on the last thing, which was a scoring of countries' pharma sectors one to four, there were only three countries, with four being the highest, there were only three countries in this, three developing countries that received the score of four, and it was India, China, and Argentina. Um, so I said that I was going to look at two sets of characteristics. Uh, I want to say something about this trade profile one, because again, it's a bit... It, it requires some elaboration. The U.S. wants countries to go beyond the WTO. So what? Countries have only signed up to the WTO. So the U.S. threatens and says, you know, if you don't go beyond WTO, we're going we're gonna to penalize you. 
we're going to put barriers on your exports from your country into the U.S. Of course, if the U.S. Puts barriers, places barriers on exports from countries under the WTO, the U.S. is in violation of WTO. Um, but the U.S. has preferential exports. All developed countries have schemes of preferential exports. And preferential exports what are given unilaterally by discretion, this is from something called the generalized system of preferences, can be taken away by discretion. So these are the, this is a form of trade dependence in which if the U.S. says, we want you to do more, and if you don't, we're going to hit you over the head, um, this is where they can hit them over the head. They're not going to hit them over the head by raising their, their, their normal tariffs on the WTO because doing so, would be, they, the U.S. would get dragged to the WTO. The whole world might change given with the new administration in the U.S., which might not care if it gets dragged to the WTO. But where, the trade, where you expect the trade pressures to matter more in terms of getting exporters to, to care is, when, is if they use these what I'm calling unilateral removable preferences, which are allowed under international trade rules. So to, to create this measure, all I did was for, I, I just put them in three-year averages for the sake of presentation to make it, easy, to make it easier. For each country, um, what it is is the, the, the numerator is the volume of exports from that country to the U.S. in a given year that entered under preferences that can be removed. Um, and you see Mexico goes down to zero because NAFTA is a, NAFTA is a form of preferences that are non-removable, well, non-removable within the treaty. Um, they're, they're bound in international trade talk, as opposed to what, as opposed to prior to NAFTA, um, in which basically Mexico had, had exceptionally high utilization of preferences under the GSP. The numerator is total exports of the country, not just to the U.S., but globally. I said a minute ago, I said earlier that I, the way I think that this, that I, the way I'd like to build on what I was calling sort of the standard open economy politics view of the international change, altering the sort of the constellation of winners and losers within a country, is that it's not just about one set of actors get stronger and another set of actors get weaker, but sets of actors don't care. This triggers a process that I call. I use the label of activating agnostics, is what I call it, because most exporters don't care about intellectual property. They don't care about patents. Your Brazilian or your, your Brazilian or your Argentinian or your Mexican export sectors, it matters absolutely nothing to them whether the country overcomplies, minimally complies, does anything with regard to pharmaceutical patents. It's totally and utterly irrelevant. But if their ability to continue accessing the, the markets on preferential terms depend, it is rides on that, then they, start, then they may start to care about it. So I call, this, I call this process activating agnostics, and I'm arguing that where political trade dependence is higher, exporters are more likely to join into the co what I'm calling the coalition for overcompliance. In Argentina, the local pharmaceutical sector is giant, uh, as the two slides ago tried to show, and Essentially, the local pharmaceutical sector comes to sort of commandeer the entire business sector um, in these debates. Um, I'm not going to go through each of these in detail. I want to basically, I'm going to, I, I want to, in this slide, actually draw attention to the, for now, the, the comparison that comes out between the two South American countries, because then it allows us to think about some alternative explanations more clearly. Um, 
The Menem government in the early 90s presented, a, they, they were the strongest advocates of extreme overcompliance. They were even more enthusiastic in what they wanted than the Salinas government was. No government anywhere in Latin America so went out of its way to please the transnational sector and the USTR, um, and they lost. Um, and they lost in ways that I think are entirely understandable from the data that I presented so far. You have a very strong uh, local pharmaceutical sector, and you have a very low level of what I was calling political trade dependence. So when the when the app when those wanting overcompliance try to widen their coalition by getting exporters in, exporters don't care. And in fact, in this period, the U.S. didn't just threaten to sanction the Argentina, but actually put uh, trade penalties on Argentina, removing some of the preferences, and it it still couldn't elicit enough a change of policy. The last part of that line is that by the end of the period, uh, still when still during the Menem government, um, the or this conflict changes. And suddenly, the local pharmaceutical sector and the executive are no longer rivals, but they're on the same side. Sort of the, the <coughs> minimalist approach becomes, a fit, becomes Argentine state policy, which becomes quite important as we move into the next time period. Um, in Brazil, the local sector looks nothing like its counterparts in Argentina. Um, but the Brazilian case is full. There's, a huge amount of politicization of the topic in Brazil on issues that go far beyond the topic of pharmaceuticals. So essentially what the Brazilian local pharmaceutical sector does is integrate into a broader set of social movements that were mostly about sort of patents on the environment, patents on life, some of these things linked to the Earth Summit that was in Rio in the 1992. Um, and they're able to basically keep pushing things, keep delaying things. Um, each of the, in each of these countries, the process starts in the legislature in 1991 and ends in 1996. I didn't put that on that slide, but from the Argentina and Brazil are both five-year periods of 91 is when the executive proposes something, 96 is when they eventually pass their laws. Mexico is a six-month period. December of 1990 is when Salinas proposes something, and June of 1991 is when it gets passed. Um, so it's a totally different story. Um, but ultimately, Brazil is a higher level of trade dependence, and the executive is able to exploit this. Uh, this is a, just a focus of, the, of this variable of these two countries sort of at the time that things were getting hot. None of these countries have levels that are anywhere near the Mexican level, uh, but the Brazilian level is much higher, um, nearly doubled during most of this period. And of course, these are just numbers they don't mean anything by themselves. What the, what the case studies, what I try to do in the case studies is show the process by which the executive 19, in 1995 and 1996 in Brazil went and sort of exploited exporters' fears to widen this coalition for, well, on this coalition for overcompliance in Brazil. But it's delayed because of this big set of mobilization that took place in Brazil in this time period. Another comparison here just to, um, is that within Brazil, there's a comparison of, like, so there's an, I don't know if, any, if there's any Brazilianists in the room here, but there's an, obvious, there's an obvious explanation that's lurking here, which is that in the 1994 elections, Cardoso wins. Cardoso's a, an enthusiast of what I'm calling overcompliance um, in a way that his predecessors weren't, and Cardoso has 
what looks like a good, uh, a powerful winning coalition in the legislature, particularly in his first, particularly in his first presidency. Um, I should say, parenthetically, just going back, that Menem also had a strong position in the legislature. His party had dominated the RG legislature in, in, in this whole time period, and Menem supposedly had a, had a, was a guy who was obsessed with, with uh, getting his way by decree if he didn't get his way um, no, through normal ways, but didn't work for him. But he had to back down. The reason why I'm saying this about why I don't think the Cardoso 1994 election story works is that there's another area. Cardoso also in, negotiated eight bilateral investment treaties in this period and got none of them passed. Um, and they got none of them passed, I'd argue, because there's no way to, to widen that this sort of fat, this sort of stuff does not widen the coalition for bilateral investment treaties um, in the way that this sort of stuff can widen the coalition for um, the introduction of pharmaceutical patents. So you get these three outcomes. By 2000, all the countries have pharmaceutical patent systems. They've introduced them differently. They've been in there for different periods of time. We then, the story then moves to a second time period in which now we have it, how does it work? I call this tailoring. Tailoring is more eclectic. So in the previous one, I was able to say these are the issues. And in every country that you look at, the three that I've looked at, any other ones you look at, the issues that are fought are when and what to do about the pipeline ones. Or as I say, looking forward and looking back. That's, in the second period, the same issues aren't what are being contested in every country because in some ways you're dealing with the consequences of your earlier decisions and depending on your earlier decisions, all sorts of different issues come up. However, there's a, there's a general set of motives that sort of are common across the case, cases the effects on health budgets of prices of patented drugs to the extent that there are patented drugs, um, the explosion of social activism around health and human rights and patented drugs, which was really a feat, which was basically a legacy of the AIDS movement uh, as it spread in, and as AIDS treatment spread in the developing world in the 1990s. And of course, external pressures because the, the USTR and the pharmaceutical sector still wanted extreme levels of overcompliance. They didn't give up. Um, but the, dis the, the details and the issues are distinct. The experiences here, um, Argentina again, it continues hoeing the minimalist line. I won't go into the details of these for the sake of time, but basically everything that Argentina does is about sort of continuing to do the minimum. If they're in the status quo, you can't take them to the WTO. The US tried and actually ended up losing. Um, but whatever happens, the Argentinians continue to uh, pursue this minimalist path. In the second time period, in some ways, the Mexican, the, the, the most interesting comparison is, of the, is Mexico and Brazil, um, because they're the two countries that overcomplied in the early period. Mexico has continuity and overcompliance, but as I'll talk about, it's not as, it's neither of the two obvious explanations Work. The two obvious explanations are there was something that they were locked into this from NAFTA, or that they had Mexico had right-wing governments um, under Fox and Calderon, while the two Argentinian countries had the two South American countries had left-wing governments. I don't think either of those explanations are going to work for us in Mexico, and I'll I'll elaborate that on a bit. The Brazil is the 
the Brazilian one is, on the one hand, this lots of tailoring, on the other hand, lots of the only one of these three countries that basically introduces a very concerted set of industrial innovation policies, um, not just to minimize the effects of pharmaceutical patents, but to try to create a pharmaceutical industry that might actually be like a pharmaceutical sector in the developed world, um, unsuccessfully, but trying, and there's constant tensions. But Brazil is a change, of course, while the first two countries more or less continue on their earlier trajectories. I want to focus on um, this is slightly out of order, actually, but I'll continue this way. I'm interested in two, to understand the ability of, of officials in the executive, in this case it's largely executives and ministries of health rather than presidents, to build coalitions to adjust their patent systems. I'm interested in two sets of issues. One is how strong the impacts were of the first set of choices, and the second one is how long those impacts, however strong they were, had to settle. Because they might be very strong, but they might have only had a couple of years to kick in. And I think about it in this simple two-by-two two way, um, that, and this is what I'm going to try to build on in the next few minutes, that where the initial choices had small impact and not much time to settle, that when these issues of tailoring of reforming system came up, that coalition building is relatively enabled. Um, the more interesting comparison is in the bottom row of initial choices that had big impact. These are the over-compliant countries, but because Mexico was early, it had more time to settle, and because Brazil was, left, was, was later, it had less time to settle. Um, I don't have a case in the upper right corner, um, but if I did, I would expect it to look like, the, the, like Brazil in the diagonals. So how do we measure impacts? Um, I don't think I put in the slide on actual sort of industrial sectors, but I'll speak to that in a sec. This is a way of measuring impact, just looking at patents itself. Let me explain what, this, what I did in this, because it's, um, I, I looked at all, as I wrote there, I looked at all new drugs that were approved in the US, so, so launched on the market in the US in a nine year period, 1996 to 2004. Um, it's 159 drugs. So these are drugs that actually get put on the market. Um, drugs typically get put on the market in the US earlier than any other country, so they're gonna get put, they were potentially going to come on the market sometime from 96 onward, but it's unlikely. It's highly unlikely that any of these drugs would have ever come on, been launched on the market anywhere else prior to 96. For each of those, I find that the US system allows us to find all of the patents that are associated with it in the US, because we have a very, there's a very transparent system that the US FDA runs that says for each drug, here's the 10 patents that are associated with it. I tie, I, for each of the patents that are associated, for each of the US patents, I find the equivalent application that was filed, if it was, in Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. And then I search in the local offices whether the equivalent application, because I, Maybe I should have been more clear about this at the beginning. Patents are national. So if you want to get a patent in the US, you apply in the US. If you want to get a patent in Brazil, you apply in Brazil. If you want to get a patent in Argentina, you apply in Argentina, and so on and so forth. You have to apply and be granted nationally. But they are, they are, you can link them together in what we call a patent family that allows you to sort of see the equivalent or like sibling application in these countries. 
So what I was doing is that from, I was taking from each drug all of the sibling applications, seeing where they were filed, and then seeing, and then, and then looking what happened at the level of patents and at the level of drugs themselves. So of the of this set, there's 50 patents granted in the U.S. in, in Argentina, excuse me, nearly three times that in Brazil, and obviously a ton more than Mexico. That's not terribly surprising. This is earlier. These are 1990s. If these drugs were launched in 1996, a lot of these patents were filed originally in the late 1980s. Um, even with Brazil's pipeline, that's really going back a long way in time. Um, of, the of the ones that were granted, what percentage of them were granted because of the pipeline? Um, in Brazil, it's almost about three-fifths. Argentina, obviously, it's none because they didn't have pipe they, that they didn't have pipeline. But I want to know at the drug level, not just patents, but at the drug level, what share of the drugs have at least one patent? Um, and you, this is probably the most, this and this are probably the two most important rows on this slide. Um, all these drugs get patented in Mexico. Virtually the entire set of drugs got, had a single supplier in Mexico. Um, about three-fifths of them in, in Brazil, which is still significant, and a very small share in Argentina. And as I read with the asterisk at the end, that even, even that sort of overstates it, because of course I collected these data in 2014, I think is the last time I did it, but that doesn't, I didn't keep, at, the, at 2000 and 2001, these numbers were much smaller. Um, a drug might have multiple patents that are associated with it, might have five patents associated. One might be normal, meaning it was after the country started granting patents. One might be pipeline. The last, the last row is basically how many of the drugs in the sample became single supplier. They became patent protected in the country because of the country's choice of having this pipeline. Um, in other words, the only patents associated to these drugs that were granted in this country, the only ones were only with the pipeline. No, no normal um, applications, no normal patents were granted. Um, and this speaks to the significance of the pipeline, this decision to allow these earlier retroactive inventions in Brazil. Um, and that more than half of the ones, more than half of the drugs that ever got patented in Brazil got patented because of the pipeline. This becomes particularly important in the area of HIV AIDS because when the Brazilians start, the, Brazil, the reason why Brazil had such intense conflicts with international pharmaceutical firms over drug, AIDS drugs is because the AIDS drugs were patented because of this pipeline. Almost all of the HIV AIDS drugs that the Brazilians entered into big conflicts with in the early 2000s are in, are in this realm. Um, another way of putting it, if the Brazilians had not over-complied in this way, none of those conflicts would have taken place in the 2000s. Yeah, sure. Silly, maybe silly question. So, uh, for example, in Argentina, you have 23%. That means that the rest were, of publications were rejected, or not, or, or only 23% of the drugs applied for a, for a patent and were approved? Um, only 23% of these of these 159 drugs, uh -huh. only 37 of them had any patents associated with them in Argentina. 
Of the other, you know, the other remaining, what that would be 77%, some of them were never applied for in Argentina. Many of them were applied for and not granted in Argentina. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's an okay. important distinction. But between, I mean, between the ones that applied and didn't get the approval, and yeah. the ones that. Yeah, but in this case, in this case, sorry, the, the most important part about this is that in this case, most of them were never, most of them were never eligible, because their applications were pre-1995. So, you know, I said that if you could, you, if, if you wanted to, you could basically, you could act as if the world of pharmaceutical patenting started in 1995. Argentina is the only one of these three countries that did that, and as a result, most of these drugs, even though they were launched in, the, in 1996 onward, had applications that were earlier. So in the case of Argentina, I said of the other 77%, most either weren't applied for or they were applied for and rejected, but most of them actually were never eligible. Um, just to, this is not part of this paper, but I have another paper with a colleague where we looked at this. If you look at this is, a, this is a worthwhile parenthesis because it speaks to the importance of this 1995 point. If you look at all the drugs launched in any given year from 1995 on, all the way to the present, and you look at the, the first patents, the most important patent for that drug, when its date was, until like 2007 or something, still more than half of the drugs that were launched in any given year relied on pre-1995 applications. So that means that countries that stuck to that 1995 rule, it basically meant they've entered this new world of pharmaceutical patenting, but most of the drugs that had been launched from 1995 on couldn't be patented in their country. So it's only the countries that, that respected the pre-95 ones, that over-complied in that way, that really felt the brunt of the fully felt the brunt immediately. Because what it means is that for, this is Brazil and Mexico, what it means is that lots and lots and lots of drugs have single suppliers. The local firms can't produce these drugs anymore. The drugs might still be available in the country, but in Argentina they'll be available from 10 different Argentinian producers. In these countries they're going to be available from one producer, Pfizer or GSK or Merck or what have you. So it depends a lot on the size of the industry and the, the local industry. It affects the size of the local industry, exactly, yes. Um, so if we looked at, I didn't, I don't know why I left it out, but so if we, if we actually look at data on sort of effects on the industrial sector, so sort of the analog of that first table that I had about what their pharmaceutical sectors looked like in the mid-1980s, um, the Argentinian sector grows. It still grows. The Argentinian, the Argentinian, that says Cleefa, it should say Silfa. Argentinian, the Argentinian firms have a, large, have a larger share of the domestic market now in 2017 than they did in 2010, and they had a larger share in 2010 than they did in 2000, and they had a larger share in 2019. They, throughout this whole period, continue to grow. Um, the, the Mexican pharmaceutical sector basically no longer exists. Um, this is like one of the sectors that sort of had the most abrupt experiences of denationalization, if I can call it that, in the post-1980s NAFTA liberalization period. Um, this is about a pharmaceutical 
final producers, but also pharmacochemical <coughs> industries, the ones who actually produce the molecules or the active ingredients or the more, the more upstream production. Can I yeah. expand a little bit on the Mexican case yeah. in that regard? I mean, it, it's a little bit curious because, as I recall, and I'm trying to recall Gary Giraffi's work a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, Mexico had a company called Exynergen, right? Which was the original uh, birth control hormone company. Yeah, so they, which, was, which I think bought out by a U.S. company, I think Cali lost control of it. Yeah. But they did have a tradition of national innovation in pharmaceuticals. So why would they walk away from that so easily? Or did they, I mean, how did that not count? Well, first of all, the national, I mean, they were very, National innovation in pharmaceuticals was never successful. So like the point of Garrett, of Dreffy's book was that basically they, it, they, they, they weren't able to create an innovative pharmaceutical industry in Mexico. What they had in Mexico was a pharmaceutical, a local pharmaceutical industry that provided to the state sector. They were not creating new drugs. They were basically, they were the ones providing drugs cheaply to the Eames and East Day. Well, what was the invented in Mexico? Yeah, but that was in the 50s. By the eighties, uh, they're by the eighties. Okay. Yeah, so they were. I it was the 70s. Yeah, so this is it was, the company is called Syntax. It was founded in the fifties. By the seventies, that, that with the steroid hormone sector in, in Mexico, by the seventies that was a uh, regarded as. In fact, that was that was Dreffy's whole thing. Like this was a a failed effort to create an autonomous national pharmaceutical sector. They couldn't pull it off. Um, so that was gone. So what the local sector in Mexico was, was basically firms producing drugs for the state sector. The reason why that matters, I didn't actually go into the case in, I didn't actually go into the details of the case in, in the first time period in Mexico, but what happens in Mexico is essentially, the USTR, Salinas wants NAFTA. The USTR says, if you want NAFTA, you give us pharmaceutical <coughs> patent. You, you put in a law that grants pharmaceutical patent now. You don't wait, you do it now. So Salinas goes and he, basically offers Salinas and Sarah, they offer, they, they offer the US, TR, everything they want. The, in that, the Mexican pharmaceutical sector basically says, now we have NAFTA to deal with. NAFTA's gonna deal with two things. Every other country is dealing with pharmaceutical patents. The Mexicans gotta deal with something else. They have to deal with government purchases because government, government procurement is a big part of NAFTA. So they're basically, in Mexico, they're, actually, they're basically fighting two fights at the same time. They're fighting the patent fight and they're fighting the government procurement fight. The Argentinians, the Brazilians, the Indians, the Colombians, every other country, they don't have to worry about. When they're introducing pharmaceutical patents, they're not also worrying about government procurement. The Mexicans are. So the, Mex the Mexican pharmaceutical sector basically, basically said, we're gonna, we're gonna lose the patent fight. Let's put all of our energies into, into government procurement. They actually got a pretty good deal in government procurement. They got an extended period in which the state sector in Mexico could continue to give them, give them preferences. The problem is it phased out in 2000, so they got an extended 2002. They got a, a good deal for, for eight years. Um, but that's the, the, they were upset, they became, I think somewhere on one of these slides I talked about how NAFTA context exacerbated things. It basically, what I try to show is it sort of reoriented the local sector to make them care more about government purchases and less about patents per se, and then they provide less kickback on that. Let me just say a couple words about the bottom right, uh, the bottom right cell here. Because um, this is, 
I think Mexico in this time, in the second time period, is particularly interesting. I've already alluded to industrial transformation. The previous slide was trying to just show the extent to which the decisions made in the 1990s allowed, led to the increase in patenting that basically meant there were more drugs that would have single suppliers in Mexico. Um, the, sector gets, the sector gets largely wiped out. You might, everything that the Mexican government does, as I said, um, seems to be to please the transnational sector. Now, I want to make two points. One is that there's nothing that the Mexican government has done, and I can go into the details of what they did, but I don't think anybody cares at this point. There's nothing that the Mexican government has done to sort of, to sort of extend its overcompliance that it did because NAFTA required it to do. Um, and there's nothing that the Mexican government even contemplated doing, or anybody in Mexican society was contemplating doing, that would have violated NAFTA. So in a sense, NAFTA as a legal sort of set of constraints is a non-issue in the 2000s. Um, and also, Mexico had zero political trade dependence in that, this time period, because unless the US government was going to leave NAFTA, which suddenly seems like it's a possibility, but it didn't seem like a possibility 15 years ago, um, Mexico was pretty, sort of pretty um, insulated from these threats. So I don't think that NAFTA can explain sort of this continued, either a failed effort to tailor the system in Mexico. The other explanation, of course, is that, as I said before, is that Mexico has conservative governments. But even, even in conservative governments, the ministries of health in these two administrations wanted to change the system. And so that's actually the coolest part, I think, of the research, is finding, the, is seeing the efforts by Ministries of Health, even within sort of what comparatively looked like sort of right-wing conservative governments, trying to change the system. But they can't because I wrote AMIF domination. AMIF is the, is the, is the, uh, sect, is the uh, trade association of the transnational sector in Mexico. Um, because on every issue, these guys sort of are able to, to beat them. They've gotten so big and strong that on every issue, in the legislature, but also when things are decided in the courts, the AMIF guys always win. The, by the AMIF guys, what I mean is basically the local Mexican association of Pfizer and GSK and Merck and so on. So I don't think that either the strict sort of international pressures explanation works in Mexico, nor does the um, sort of the ideological disposition work in Mexico in this time period any more than the ideological disposition worked in Argentina or Brazil in the earlier time period um, when the enthusiastic Menem government couldn't get what it wants and when the, the limited ability of the Cardoso government. And there's, I'm, I'm moving back up to the broader issues um, about overarching convergence, persistent differences, and I think that all of us in international and comparative political economy, again, need to focus on sort of the options that countries have and the choices that countries make in this world of convergence. Um, again, as I started off, it's not whether countries comply, but how countries comply, which is why I, I refer to this whole thing as forms of compliance. Um, and then these are sort of the two analytic points that I've been trying to drive home, um, which are 
social structure as a limiting factor for coalition building in these two time periods and this legacy effect of the first choices. Um, and I'll leave it there. I don't know how we're doing for time, but I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thank you very much.